Awesome. Good to be with you all this morning. Thanks for coming on a Saturday to hang out and talk about all things marriage. Uh, my wife and I just celebrated our 37th wedding anniversary. Yeah? I do not know how she put up with me that long, but somehow she has. And uh, we have four wonderful children, and we, and, and we have a, a strange and wonderful relationship. I'm strange, and she's wonderful. And uh, in, in our years of marriage, we have learned that, man, communication is really hard. And as we were, as we were starting out, we, uh, you know, just as, as uh, Chad was saying, I was standing up here waiting for my bride to come down the aisle. I was like, this is the best thing ever. This is great. I can't wait. I'm going to share life with this woman. And uh, uh, just celebrating that moment, but realizing that, wow, this is hard. You know, our first few years of marriage, uh, we really didn't have any, any uh, counseling. We, had, we read a book, and the uh, pastor gave us a book. Here, read this. This will help you. And we just thought, well, okay, we, we got this. And we realized, no, we really don't have this. This is hard. And we wanted our marriage to be more beautiful than our wedding. And so a lot of what I'm going to share with you today is from the school of hard knocks. And uh, we want to share some of the ways, some of the landmines that we've stepped on and be able to say, hey, here's a landmine, don't step on that. So I often tell starry-eyed young couples that, as Chad said, marriage is the hardest and best thing that you'll ever do. Uh, one of the reasons that this is both the hardest and the best thing that you'll ever do is the beauty of two individual lives coming together to be one, to share life with one another, and also, not surprisingly, the same celebration turns into really hard work after the I do's and the vows on the wedding day. Why is that? Well, because we marry the fantasy, but we live with the person. And so what does it look like to live in reality with the person? This uh, quote from Start Marriage Right is, I had in my mind what marriage was going to be, what it was going to be like, but I was still not prepared. I always wished that the perfect marriage was on sale on Amazon. Then I could just one-click buy it. After reading the reviews, of course. So if, if, uh, if, as we talk about the art of communication, what are some key things that we need to be equipped with to be good artists as we cultivate communication? The first is we need to know that we're from different worlds. We just are. How we were raised, how our families engaged in communication and conflict is our sense of normal. If one spouse's family of origin was blunt in conversation and moved towards tension and talked through things at kind of a high-pitched tone and, you know, assertively, then that's what that person feels is normal. Okay, now you're going to marry someone whose family of origin avoided issues, avoided conflict. This is one of those areas where these two people are going to clash. Their worlds are going to collide because they come from a different sense of normal. So, you know, one, the one spouse might think, oh, why are you so passive? And the other one think, why are you so aggressive? Well, that's because we come from different backgrounds. And understand the ironic dilemma in marriage. All of us have it, and that is, I was attracted to you because you were so wonderfully different. Now that we're married, why can't you be more like me? So that's the ironic dilemma. You can't have it both ways, friends. These are the spaces where we are different, where we need to grow to understand one another. 
Understanding that as we are becoming one, we have different values, expectations, and norms. Most of these differences go unnoticed until they're not met or they're confronted. So what I want to invite you to do, consider going forward is, since we do come from different worlds, is think of it this way. I want you to close the door on your world. I want you to enter into the world of your spouse. I want you two to sit at a little two-seater bench and look and see, what does this look like to you? This is my world. This is how my normal is. This is what I see. Okay, I'm going to leave that. I'm going to step into your world. I'm going to sit down with you and I'm going to say, what do you see? How does this look to you? Because it's very different. An excellent question as you're doing that, as you navigate the challenges and the differences of your relationship is, what does this look like to you? What does this feel like to you? What did, how did your family do this? How did your family resolve this? What was normal for you? That's how we step out of our world and step into the world of our spouse. The second thing that we do as we become artists of communication is we got to move towards one another. Psalm 128 and Proverbs 31 are just beautiful uh, pictures of this. Psalm 128, verse 3. Your wife will be like a flourishing vine within your house, and your children will be like olive shoots around your table. So husbands, what does it look like for you to lay down your life for your wife, to love her as Christ loves the church, giving himself up for her, so that she could flourish. So it's not about what can I get out of my wife, how do I meet my agenda, and how do you come alongside me to help me get done what I want to get done in life. It's like, no, the Lord has brought this beautiful lady by your side. You are co-heirs with Christ, equal in value, dignity, and worth. How do you live out by the power of the Holy Spirit? Psalm 128. Your wife will be like a flourishing vine in your house. That's so beautiful. Your children like olive shoots around your table. We were recently in Spain a couple years ago for our sabbatical, and they had just the most lush, beautiful vineyards. It was just amazing to drive through acres and acres of vineyards. And then, you know, in other areas down southern Spain, uh, olive groves that were just massive. And just to sit there and think, oh, Lord, I want my family. Myrna and I want our family to be like a flourishing vine. I want her to be flourishing. And we love doing this together. You know, I'm standing up here, and just as Dylan pointed out, I wouldn't be doing this except for my wife, because we'd love doing this together, investing into young couples, sharing life together, praying together, because I want her to flourish. Now, likewise, oh, and let me say this also. For us husbands, again, this is our responsibility. We have to take ownership of that. We have to take... Okay, but our calling is to let our wives flourish. We can't just say, well, I hope you do okay. It's like, no, I want to create that atmosphere where that's possible. Psalm 1, or excuse me, uh, Proverbs 31, verses 10 through 12. An excellent wife who can find. She is far more precious than jewels. The heart of her husband trusts in her, and he will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not harm all the days of her life. So look how beautifully... Psalm 128 and Proverbs 31, verses 10 to 12, move towards one another. That we're not taking from one another. Well, you do your part and I'll do mine. 
You fulfill your vows, I'll fulfill mine. You fulfill your, my, my expectations, I'll fulfill yours. No, they're beautifully moving towards one another. The heart of her husband is moving towards his wife. The heart of his, the wife is moving towards the husband that we're depositing into our relationship, that we're seeing it in botanical terms, thousands of little touches through the years so that it would grow and flourish. So what are the important ways that we should consider one another as more important than ourselves? What are the ways that both husband and wife can flourish and grow in trust and connection? That's the task at hand. So the third thing, as we become artists of communication, is to know that communication is more than just words. One of the key challenges of any relationship is communication. The definition of communication, it is a process by which information is exchanged between individuals through a common system of symbols, signs, or behavior. Oh, good. That's easy. That makes sense. Sure, let's do that. Now I get it. This is easy, right? Now that we understand what communication is, all we have to do is do it, right? Just do it. No, it's not that easy. Okay, now that we understand what the definition is, we'd have Leslie come up and talk about sex. We'll just move on. <laughs> no, it's not that easy. Alan Greenspan says, I know you think you understand what you thought I said, but I'm not sure you realize that what you heard is not what I meant. <laughs> so communication is really hard, and it touches everything that we do as couples. Good and healthy communication helps us understand one another, helps us listen and experience the thoughts and the emotions of, our, of the person that we're married to, helps us to grow closer together. This sounds wonderful, but it is a difficult process. On the other hand, poor and unhealthy communication leads us to frustration, to misunderstandings, potentially to unforgiveness, and moving away from one another in disappointment and anger. So all we need to do is just learn to communicate, right? We just need better skills, better techniques, right? No, not quite. Communication is not just a skill. It is not just clever techniques. It is much deeper than this. It is actually knowing your spouse, knowing them. To communicate openly and freely, we must be vulnerable with one another. The scripture says of Adam and Eve that before the fall, they were both naked and unashamed. They were uncovered and unashamed. They were vulnerable and unashamed. What a beautiful picture of what marriage is supposed to look like. And quite honestly, I have no clue what it feels like to be unashamed. I don't think you do either. We've lived in such brokenness and sin throughout our lives and, and, and generations that we don't really know what that feels like. But Adam and Eve got a taste of that. And as Chad said, one day we'll be coming down the aisle towards Christ, our groom, and we'll know what that fully feels like. Psychologist and author Susan Johnson explains that vulnerability is the primary way to strengthen the marriage bond and keep love alive because it creates emotional safety. There are several factors that are needed in an emotionally safe marriage. 
Emotional safety puts feet to unconditional love. Emotional safety allows us to fully be ourselves, where we don't have to be on display, we don't have to be buttoned up, we don't have to pretend, we don't have to put on our ideal self of this is who I want you to think I am or this is who I feel like you want me to be. It is being our real self, fully known, fully vulnerable, warts and all, good, bad, and ugly, to say this is who I am. And I feel fully accepted by you. So it allows us to be ourselves. It is required if we want to experience growth in the blessings of the marriage relationship. So what does it look like to cultivate emotional safety? Why is that so important? Emotional safety is that space that we both move toward as a couple where we find freedom to open up ourselves to conversation and find acceptance, love, and forgiveness and unconditional love. This is a place where we are affirmed and validated. We don't have to be guarded or uneasy. You know, what if I say this? Is this going to make my husband blow up or, or dismiss me or go quiet or stonewall me, which we'll talk about in a moment? What if I say this? Is my wife going to react to that? So if we're in a place where we have to calculate what we're saying in fear of how that's going to change the dynamics of a relationship, that's not emotional safety. Emotional safety is, hey, I may not have the words for what I'm feeling. I may not understand what I'm feeling, but I feel safe to put it on the table and not feel judged or harshly pushed aside. Like, oh, we can talk about this. Just so you know, this kind of unconditional love and acceptance does not come naturally. One of the greatest uh, blessings of your marriage one of the greatest blessings of marriage in general is, wow, what a beautiful invitation that I need a savior. Because we don't love like that. We just don't. I can't manufacture that kind of love. I can't say, well, I'm just going to love better. It's like, Lord Jesus, I'm married to an incredible woman. But Lord, will you let me see her through your eyes? Will you let me love her the way she needs to be loved? And likewise, Myrna's praying, Lord, I have a crazy guy. Will you help me to love him the way you do? Will you help me to see him through your eyes so that we could love each other well? And we are not ashamed to pray that with each other because we don't have any bones about, hey, that kind of unconditional love is deeper than we've got. This is an invitation, a beautiful invitation that you need a savior. 1 John 4, 18 and 19 says, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. So I see Christ's love for us, the way he moves towards us. I want to love my wife that same way. She wants to love me that same way. In a prepared and rich study involving 50,000 married couples, the most problematic issue in couples' communication was this sentence. I wish my partner was more willing to share his or her feelings. 76% of couples in the study named this as their number one complaint in their relationship. Another, in this, another sentence in this, in the same study, 65% of couples agreed with this statement. My partner often does not understand how I feel. That's really tragic. Because that means that the majority of married couples do not feel connected. Do not feel heard or really listened to. 
We can only open up ourselves in real vulnerable communication when we feel safe in trusting one another. That we say, I hear you, I validate you, I affirm what you're feeling. We're not cultivating skills or techniques. We're wanting to know our spouse. We're wanting to experience what they're experiencing. If we have this good, solid cultivation of emotional safety and connection, then we can, we can learn communication skills. We can learn active listening. We can learn uh, to, to hear well, to listen well. But if we have no vulnerability in that uh, safety in the emotion, emotional connection, all that's going to feel like manipulation. But in that, we can move forward to active listening like, hey, this is what I hear you saying. Is that what you meant? That's active listening. And within the atmosphere of emotional safety, that helps us understand one another. Just like that quote from Alan Greenspan. I, I think, you know, I, what I'm saying is I don't think you're hearing what I'm saying. Another is this is how I'm experiencing you right now. Where, you know, we might be in different worlds. This is how I'm experiencing you. You know, and that's a way that invites deeper conversation. So consider this. Communication to be effective is mostly listening. Not speaking. Listening, not thinking, well, this is what you're saying, here's my response to that, and I can't wait for you to catch a breath, because then I'm going to throw in my response. <laughs> I'm not listening if I'm doing that. It's like, I want, tell me more about that. How did that make you feel? You know, what, help me to understand that deeper. Oh, I'm so sorry, that's so hard. Communication, to be effective, is mostly listening, not speaking. Okay, so in, in being artisans of communication, let's look at number four. We got to learn to fight clean. We got to learn to fight clean. The next time your wife gets angry, drape a towel over her shoulders like a cape and exclaim, Now you're super angry. Maybe she'll laugh. Maybe you'll die. We will have conflict. We just will. The question is, how will we lean into it? It is not if, but when. We must learn to fight clean. Remember the need and invitation to cultivate emotional safety. This is where that really takes place, is I can really share my heart, and you can share yours, and we're going to walk away arm in arm. I love you. I love you. Sometimes it takes that tone, but we are committed. We are going to work this out. My keys are on the table. I'm not going anywhere. This is super important in conflict resolution. Doctors Parrott and Olson said this, in a good fight, partners are allies, not adversaries. A good fight stays clean, and a bad fight gets dirty. Max Lucado put it this way, conflict is inevitable, but combat is optional. Here's some shocking news. According to an extended study at the University of Utah, 93% of couples who fight dirty, i.e. as adversaries against one another, will be divorced in 10 years. Another study at Ohio State University 
shows that unhealthy marital arguments contribute significantly to a higher risk of heart attacks, headaches, back pain, and other health issues, not to mention just being unhappy. So what is a dirty fight? John Gottman founded a research laboratory called the Love Lab in 1986, and he has been instrumental in understanding conflict within marriages. He identifies what he calls the four horsemen of the apocalypse in unhealthy communication and marriage. He's been able to identify these four characteristics in a marriage that will destroy a relationship if they're not addressed. So in other words, if these four elements, these characteristics are there and they're ignored, not addressed, and they're the culture of the relationship, they're going to destroy the relationship. Identifying these four red flags, check engine lights, if you will, in our own marriage is the first step in eliminating them, avoiding them, not cultivating them, and replacing them with healthy dynamics. Uh, A couple of years ago, I was driving home from church and my engine light came on in my Volkswagen Passat. And I'm thought, oh, that's, wonder what that's all about. So I'm driving on the Kilpatrick Turnpike and then my check engine light started to flash. Huh, I've never seen that flash. I didn't know it flashed. That's interesting. <laughs> so, and then it started to go. And so I pulled over, brilliant person that I am. It's like, something's wrong. So I pull over and I call the Volkswagen dealership. I said, hey, good afternoon. My check engine light is flashing and my car's doing weird things. Oh, pull over immediately. Well, I did. Stay there. Do not drive that car. Turn it off. Okay? Get it towed into the dealership and we need to take care of it. Okay, that sounds pretty serious. Uh, We don't know what it is, but if it's flashing, that's like, that's read my lips. Hello? Do not drive this car. So if, if you see these check engine lights come on in your relationship, especially if they're flashing, the advice I got from the dealership was, this is serious, don't ignore this. So here are the four horsemen of the apocalypse. If you see these either on or flashing, pull over and call a tow truck. Do not, do not proceed. You've got to take care of this. The first is criticism. Criticizing your partner is different than offering a critique or a complaint. Complaining keeps us honest and authentic, but critiquing, criticizing is more harsh. It's like an attack on the person. We have to be honest with one another because in our relationship, we're not always going to be happy. I don't know if you've noticed that, just, you know, spoiler alert, but you have to be able to talk about that in ways that's not critical and sharp and attacking the person because that's uh, unhealthy. It'll push us apart in criticism. The next is contempt. Contempt is one of the most detrimental things to the health of a marriage. Contempt is any belittling remark that makes your spouse feel like they're an inch tall. It can be sarcastic, caustic, it can be mocking, or just simply mean. And it doesn't have to be spoken. It can be nonverbal. It can be a roll of the eyes, it can be a shrug of the shoulders, it could be, you know, turning away, It could be, you know, just, you know, in the middle of an argument where you just feel like you're being pushed aside. Uh, It deflects, or excuse me, uh, we as couples need to avoid this contempt as if it were poison, because it is poison. The next is defensiveness. 
these four horsemen of the apocalypse. This is often in response to criticism, where I'm being criticized or the other person being criticized, and then just this armor of defensiveness. It's like self-protective armor. It can take many forms, such as anger or playing the victim, where we're deflecting and diffusing and, and uh, dismissing what the person is saying so that they don't feel heard. They feel shut out. It wards off a threat. This only makes the conflict worse. So uh, defensiveness. The, na- the last is stonewalling. Stonewalling occurs when a partner withdraws from the interaction. He shuts down or just stops responding. Rather than confronting important issues, it's an elusive maneuver to avoid it. And this can take, uh, uh, take the, the form of turning away, walling up, uh, engaging in distracting behavior, or just shutting the other person out. And as the Lord's transformed my character and sanctified me, I used to stonewall Myrna a lot. When she would make me mad, I would just wall up. And I was not moving towards her, but I would just wall up. That's not healthy. And when I realized, hey, that's a check engine line. That's a red flag. It's like, Lord, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. And see where there be hurtful ways in me and lead me in the way everlasting. By and large, men tend to stonewall quicker than women. All of these are unhealthy characteristics in a relationship and should be addressed. They should be uh, identified, addressed, and eliminated. So how do we cultivate healthy communication conflict resolution? How do we move towards one another in anxious situations with non-anxious presence? Well, we must get to the core. The core is cooperation, ownership, respect, and empathy. So let's talk about each of those. Cooperation, we need to contend for team us. We are not adversaries, but we're allies. So our goal is in communication and conflict resolution to win-win. We do not use you and I, but we. This is team us. Put the issue on the table and walk around it and ask yourself, how do we address this issue as team us? Here are some helpful ways. The first is make being right less important. Don't let being right the most important part of your communication or conflict. What if we made being right secondary to the growth and the health of our relationship? Let's put aside pride in being right and grow in grace for each other. The next is strike while the iron is cold. Don't fight when one or both of you is heated. Let tempers cool down and come back to this conversation when you can address it better. Let's come back to this later. And it doesn't mean you're stonewalling or blocking. It means, hey, you know what? I'm not exactly sure what I feel in this moment right now. But let's push pause on this conversation until I can gather my thoughts and come back in a cooler, objective way and we can talk through this. Another way to do that is have a regular coffee date where you have space in your relationship to move towards one another in hard conversations. You know, where it's like a business meeting. What business are we in? We're in the business of marriage. Well, good, how's business? (laughs) How are we doing? 
How are we doing? How are we moving towards one another? Let's come back to this later. That creates a space where we've got to talk about something hard, but we're not going to talk about it in the, min- in the moment. We're going to talk about it later when we can, hey, we can be objective. We can walk around this together and, and be team us. The third thing, as far as cooperation, is don't believe everything you think. Charlie and Linda Bloom, authors of Secrets of Great Marriages, says this, the difference between what is and what I think is can be incredibly difficult to determine. Our thoughts can be extremely convincing if we're in the middle of an argument. So this is what I'm thinking that's got to be right. Oh, don't believe everything you think. Ownership. We got to take ownership. Take ownership of your stuff. In order to resolve conflict, we have to be honest and own what is ours to own. If you would just get your act together, we'd have a good marriage. Oh, really? No, I have to own my stuff. We learn. We we must learn to do this without being defensive. Realize that self-centered pride is at the heart of every bad fight. We must avoid self-centered pride and the classic definition of an argument, which is this. See if you've heard this before. See if you've said this before. I tell you all the ways that you're wrong. Well, then you tell me all the ways that I'm wrong. And then I tell you the only reason that I'm this way is because of you. And then you tell me the only reason that you are this way is because of me. And around and around that goes, and we don't get anywhere. So avoid that. Next is respect. We don't hit below the belt. We don't name call. We don't say you always or you never. Uh, We must speak respectfully to our spouse. We want to cultivate a relationship culture of grace with forgiveness. And there's two kinds of forgiveness that we want to cultivate. The first is atmospheric forgiveness. It's in the air. It's in the atmosphere of our culture, of of our marriage. It just is where we quickly move to mercy, not law, grace instead of judgment, where I want to believe the best. I want to, okay, we're going to work through this. That's atmospheric forgiveness, where we walk in that as kind of a thing that we breathe. We breathe it in and we breathe it out. Now, in the midst of that, where we have this good, healthy sense of forgiveness and mercy and grace, there is transactional forgiveness, where something happened. It just does. If you've been married longer than 15 minutes, you're going to do something that just hurts the other person. You've probably already experienced it already, just to tell you the truth. Transactional forgiveness is in the moment. I did something. I said something that was hurtful. I am so sorry. Will you please forgive me? The opposite side of this, which is not forgiveness, hey, if in any way I possibly might have hurt you, will you please forgive me? (laughs) That's not good forgiveness. That's not actually forgiveness at all. Heaven forbid that I, me personally, would do something that would hurt you, but if you're sensitive enough to be hurt, then please forgive me. (laughs) No. It is I own it. And I'm going to treat you with respect and say, I'm sorry I hurt you. Please forgive me. When we're wounded, respect sets the stage for forgiveness. So what does it look like to walk out Proverbs 25.11 in respect? Which says, a word fitly spoken 
is like apples of gold in settings of silver. And then lastly, empathy. Ask the Lord to give you empathy, to feel what your spouse is feeling. Research shows that 90% of marital spats can be resolved if all the couple does is accurately see the issue from the other person's perspective. Hear this, nine times out of 10, conflicts may be resolved when couples step into one another's shoes. Therefore, as I said before, close the door on your world. Enter into the world of your spouse. Sit at a little two-seater bench with them and look around and say, what does this look like to you? You seem really heated right now. Something's really bothering you right now. What does this look like to you? I don't catch it. Help me to understand you. Help me to love you well in this moment. Help me to see what you're seeing. And then you can move towards one another. In all of these core values, be mindful that we are walking out Philippians 2 by the grace and the empowering of the Holy Spirit. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, count others, in this context your spouse, more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interest of others, and here, your spouse. And then lastly, don't take yourself too seriously. The only people that I know who have it all together are people that I don't know very well. As soon as I get to know them, I realize, oh, they're jacked up just like I am. We can be friends. We are not a Facebook post. We are not a snapshot or a selfie. Marriage is not a sprint, but a marathon. We never graduate from spouse school. 69% of relationship problems are perpetual. Oh, thanks for that kindness. I'm encouraged. Perpetual problems exist even in the healthiest of relationships due to lasting personality differences between partners. So the question is not how do we become more similar, but how do we celebrate and honor our difference in a way that's healthy? At the core, again, of this struggle is a deep unspoken question, why can't you be more like me? But just think how boring it would be if you married yourself. Ren, I like your laugh. It just kind of brings it right out of me. Your differences and your challenge are the very place that we are brought to the foot of the cross. It is the very place that God is forming us into the image of his beloved son so that we'll be like him when we see him face to face. So remember the promise of 1 Thessalonians 5, that now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely And may your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, and he will surely do it. Amen.